0: Our scripture reading today is from Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind Then he set him on his animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took him out, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thank you, Amy, for reading that passage for us this morning. It's got to be in the top ten, right? The Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan in Scripture. We have 23rd Psalm, I think, would be in there, the Lord's Prayer. It's got to be in terms of people and their familiarity with stories from the Bible. The Good Samaritan is is one of them. Although, I think it tends to be one of those stories that people have a sense of, but don't necessarily understand the complexity of. Um, we're going to talk about it today. It's, a, it's, a, it's such a compelling story that Jesus tells. So, I want you to imagine a place in this world with me. Uh, when I was in college, I spent a semester studying uh, in Israel and some friends of mine and I, there were three of us, three guys, we went on a hike together. We, we were going to, it was about a 15-mile hike. We were going to get, we lived in Jerusalem and there was this, this trailhead about three miles outside the city. And we got in a taxi, we had some bottles of water with us, and we went out into the Judean desert and we were going to follow this wadi. A wadi is a, a basically a dried-up riverbed that has water in it when it rains, but most of the time is just, is just empty, uh, dirt, you know, s- sand and all that. And, and it, it had an aqueduct running through it um, following because it was going downhill because Jerusalem's the high point in Israel and kind of from every direction. And we were headed east and there was this aqueduct that flowed all the way down to kind of near where the Dead Sea is, which is the lowest point on the face of the earth. About 1,300 feet below sea level is the Dead Sea. Think about that. 1,300 feet below sea level is the Dead Sea. And so we're following this, this aqueduct through this wilderness area. It's Bedouin country, and there's, and there's just nobody around. And everything is beige, beige. And it's hot, and we we you know we're college kids, so we didn't we didn't think a lot about what we would need. um we just thought, well, it'll just you know take us a few hours to get to the other to, you know it's all downhill, right and so we're we're walking, and we get about i don't know four miles or so from our goal, and we're out of water, and we're we're having that that experience that you see in TV shows where, where people are suddenly in the desert without water and they're kind of like, you know, their lips are cracking and they're you know they're, they're seeing mirages everywhere. And we're following an aqueduct. There's plenty of water just running right, right next to us. It's this very verdant green line that we're following through all this beige. But we don't really trust it to drink because it may satisfy our thirst in the moment, but then we may be in a really bad way, you know, about 18 hours later. And so so we're walking through this wadi, and we come around this corner, and we see what we could have taken as a mirage is this kind of robin egg blue dome built into the side of this cliff. And then as we get closer, there's more of them. There's, There's several of these rooftops built into the side, and it's a monastery that's just Built into the side of this wadi, it's called the Wadi Kilt, and it's on the other side. And so we descend all the way down to the bottom, and we go up because we we figure there's there's people there. We didn't realize it was a monastery at the time, but we knew there were there were people there. We're going to knock on the door and see if we could get some water. And when they open the door, we see the signs as we're going up that says it's a monastery. Uh, we knock on the door, uh, some monks let us in. You know we- and they give us some water and they give us a little short little tour of the place. You know, we, we were clearly not the first three Americans in their early 20s who knocked on their door looking for water. And uh, one of the rooms that they let us into, again, it's just built into the side of this cliff. So a lot of the rooms are very cavernous, not, not a lot of windows. And they lead us into this, this room that's kind of close to the entrance where we came in. And it's, it's a room about the size of this stage, and there's a, there's a walkway in front of it, and then there's kind of a shelf with bars for windows, almost like a jail cell. And inside of it is just full of human bones, It's just full. And then there are these uh, two shelves in the back of skulls, just human skulls, just lined up. And it was, it was the, the, the bones of the monks who had lived there if you've ever heard the expression, the gathering of the bones of the forefathers, the way that burials would happen in an arid culture like that is when a person would die, they would be placed in a tomb for a while. This is why, you know, when you read the story of Jesus' burial, it's a tomb that was owned by somebody else and it was a rich man's tomb and there was room in it, is that, is that a body would be laid there it would decompose. And then the bones would be left, and they would gather those bones, and they'd put the bones with the bones of the rest of the family. And so here in this monastery, I have a photo of it, of, of these skulls in this just pit of bones in this arid desert place where we were just in trouble. I'm describing to you the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was the road from Jerusalem to Jericho that we were on, pre-monastery. It's a place that its ancient euphemistic name was the Pass of Blood. Because you would go from the city of Jerusalem down to the city of Jericho, but there was nothing in between, except for just this arid, craggy, waddy, canyon-filled land. And so to make that journey, if you made it alone, you exposed yourself to all kinds of danger. And Jesus tells a story, and when he tells the story about there was a man on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho, everybody's right there. They know exactly where he's talking about. It's like the dark back alley of Palestine. People aren't wondering. It's specific why he says that. Why does he tell this story? It's good to understand when we get into parables, which we're going to be in for the rest of the summer, the parables of Jesus. It's good to understand, like, why did Jesus tell this parable? What set it off? Because it's different, and, and the texts usually tell us why he's telling this story. It was Jesus' preferred method of teaching, was storytelling. You find the Sermon on the Mount, and there are other kind of bits and pieces of sermon-type teaching, but the vast majority of the way Jesus taught was stories, parables. There was a man who had two sons. Here, what happens is it's, it's kind of a, a, a delicious intro, if you will, because it involves a lawyer. There's a lawyer who stands up. Now, a lawyer in the biblical times would not have been like, you know, the, the lawyer you think of who offices out of the Franklin courthouse. This would have been a teacher of the law of God. So somebody who studied scripture, who tried to understand Levitical law, and, and then as a byproduct of that also would have regarded themselves as somebody who carried it out as well and so here you have a lawyer think lawkeeper, law expert and it tells us in the very beginning that the reason he's even talking to Jesus is because he's putting him to the test he's testing Jesus he's testing him for whatever reason to see what he's made of to see how sharp he is to see if he really understands the law at all and so he asks Jesus this question after verse 25 tells us he's, he's doing this because he's testing Jesus. And he says, teacher. And so even there, you have one teacher of the law talking to a rabbi, another teacher of the law, which you could say, oh, he's regarding him as a colleague. Or you could see it as probably what it is, and that is a little bit of a sign of disrespect. That as a teacher of the law, he's asking Jesus to test him teacher. Let's see if you're a teacher. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Scripture is veiled when it comes to humor. There's not a lot of moments in Scripture that you look at and you say, that's funny. But there are lots of places in Scripture where there are layers of humor. If you just step back and look at what's happening, how a scene is unfolding, It's a little bit funny, and this is one of them, because this lawyer is testing Jesus. Jesus knows what his motive is. He knows that he's testing him, and he says, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? To which Jesus responds, well, uh, what does the law say, lawyer? How do you read it? And then the teacher answers him, right? And he says, well, it says, you shall love the Lord your God with your whole mind, whole heart, whole body, whole strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then I love how Jesus responds to this. Because again, he's not having it. He knows that he's being tested. He's not having it. And so his response to him is, right just do that and the lawyer is not getting what he wants he's not getting any satisfaction out of this conversation what does the law say well it says to love the lord your god with all your heart mind soul and strength love your neighbor as yourself and jesus says we'll do that and so he wants to justify himself and he says okay and who is my neighbor And that's when Jesus tells the story. There was a man. There was a man who was on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was going down that road, the pass of blood. Dun, dun, dun. Right? And he fell among robbers. You saw that coming. And he was beaten and he was left for dead and all of his things were taken from him. And there he is exposed in the wilderness. He's got hours maybe to survive unless somebody comes along and saves him. He will not last there long. And then he gets into the story of what happens next. And it's the story of victimizers and victims, but it's also the story of the indifferent and the concerned. Those who pass by the beaten man first are the ones that we would think would be most likely to help. Because first you have a priest, a religious leader, somebody whose job it is to intercede between God and man. And his job is to care for those around him, but he sees the man there lying on the road. And what does he do? He passes over to the other side of the street, the other side of the the road there, and he keeps going. And then a Levite comes along. And the same thing happens. He passes over onto the other side of the road. What's happening here? Well, you could make the case that, well, hey, when you're on the path of blood, that just changes people. It changes the situation. It's a different set of circumstances. Or you could make the observation, or you can make the connection that, well, no, it just exposes what's in you. And so that's what happens. We don't know who the robbers are, but what we can assume is we can assume that the victim is Jewish. And the reason we can assume that the victim is Jewish is Jesus is talking to a teacher of the law, and he's specifying who people are in this scenario, and he specifies the Samaritan being a Samaritan. And he talks about the Levite, and he talks about the priest. And the fact that he doesn't identify the victim is made to understand he's one of you. He's like you. He's on his way from here, where we are, to there. And as the man on the road is clinging to life, the priest happens along but crosses over. You'd expect compassion, but what you get is indifference. The same happens with the Levite. He's an educated man. He's important. He's upper class. He's among the upper class of the people of Israel, he has this life of privilege and honor, and he passes by too. And Jesus doesn't tell us why they ignored their brother, just that they did. This is part of the mastery of Jesus' storytelling. It's not just what he tells you, but it's what he withholds from the story as well. Because there are certain things that he withholds from the story that are then left for us to understand. Jesus wants us to identify. He wants us to wonder or even assume why it is that they didn't stop. And so we could look at the priest and we could say, well, if a priest touches a dead person, he becomes ceremonially unclean and he has to go through this laborious process that would take him out of work for a while. It would inconvenience him. And he sees this man, he doesn't know if he's alive or dead. And even if he is alive and he helps him and he dies on the way, then he's got to go through this whole ritual process. And and is that really a way to serve your congregation? Is that really a way to care for the people that you're supposed to care for if you have to sideline yourself because you've been defiled, because you're taking care of this person that you've never even met? You're the Levite. You're important. You're probably traveling because somebody needs you. Somebody needs you to come and do something important. And so you're on your way. People are anticipating your arrival. You're an important person on an important journey. You don't want to be rude to your hosts. You don't want to keep people waiting. And so you hurry along, kind of relieved with the responsibility that is beckoning you to go. And maybe you even tell yourself, under different circumstances, maybe I would stop, but I really just just can't right now. Or maybe... It's not even those that come to mind, but maybe you just think, well, maybe, he, maybe they both see the freshness of the crime scene. Maybe the blood is still fresh, and, and you wonder, are the robbers still there? Did they get enough? Are they waiting and hiding for another person to come by? Is this a trap? We don't know why they excuse themselves, and because we don't know why they excuse themselves, we get to imagine why they excuse themselves, by putting ourselves in that same position and saying, well, what would I do? And then here comes the twist, right? A third person comes by. Who is it? It's a Samaritan. And to this, the teacher of the law would have said, that's, that's not good. That's not good at all. In fact, the Samaritan had the best excuse to pass by because there was a deep, rift there was hatred between Jews and Samaritans and we know this we read this in passages of scripture you know woman at the well where Jesus she's a Samaritan and Jesus is talking to her but it's good to understand where that animosity comes from between these two people groups who are the Samaritans why are they there why are they so close to to Jerusalem why do they have an area called Samaria that's that's theirs and, and people kind of keep separate what's going on there here's the history broad brushstrokes in 721 BC so about 750 years probably prior to Jesus telling this story the northern kingdom of Israel was carried off into exile by the Assyrians during their time when they were in Assyria those people of Israel intermarried with their captors and they had families because they were there for a while And then when some of them returned from that lineage, when they returned to Israel, they returned as a mixed race of people. And that mixed race of people became known as the Samaritans. And to the southern kingdom of Jews, those who had been carried off into exile in Babylon and had not remarried, those thought that what the Samaritans did was unthinkable. They had defiled the bloodline of Abraham. And so to them, Samaritans were worse than full-fledged Gentiles because they were half-Gentiles by choice. And so if Jesus had told the story the other way around, there was a Samaritan going from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers and he was beaten within an inch of his life and left there to die, the teacher of the law that Jesus was telling the story to wouldn't have understood the point at all because he would have said, what do you do when you find a Samaritan lying beaten in the road? You assume that the providence of God is caught, caught up with him finally. The rift between the Samaritans and the Jews, it wasn't a one-way street either. The Samaritans were as disrespectful to the Jewish people as the Jewish people were to the Samaritans. It was not good because it was a nationalistic world. And so individual people represented the nation to which they belonged, and it didn't matter in many people's minds if one particular Samaritan had personally wronged one particular Jew, because for many, one Samaritan represented all of Samaria, and one particular Jew represented all of Israel. But when Jesus tells the story, he said there was a Samaritan who passed, and what happened? He had compassion on him and in that Jesus is saying this person saw this other person and it stirred something inside of him to say I am going to help him and so in Christ's parable it is dramatic that it was the Samaritan that stopped but it was also really to the point of Jesus' answer to the question that initiated the parable in the first place. And who is my neighbor? Because what Jesus is giving him as an answer is complicated. It's complicated for a person who has said, I'm using the law to build a framework that tells me these are the things I'm beholden to, These are the things I'm not. And if I'm doing these things, then I am unimpeachable and there's nothing you can hold against me. I am a law keeper. And Jesus says, who is your neighbor? Beyond race, beyond income, beyond class, beyond religion, your neighbor is anybody who's in your path. That's who your neighbor is. Anybody who's in your path. And what's more is that neighbor may change your path when you see them. So what he does is he, he flips the question because Jesus says, what does the law require? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the religious leader, his question is, okay, who's my neighbor? It's the wrong question. What's the right question? It's not who is my neighbor. The right question is what is love? Love what is love? So he answers the question, who is my neighbor with anybody in your path? But is this his full answer to the question? No, because Jesus doesn't just tell him who his neighbor is. What he tells him is he says, this is what neighboring looks like. That's what you should be concerned about. His parable asks the lawyer, do you act like a neighbor? to those in your path who need your help. See, we sang the song earlier, right? Open up my eyes in wonder. Show me who you are. Fill me. Lead me in your love to those around me. You see what Jesus is doing here? He's changing gears by refining the question. Because loving your neighbor is not so much about defining what a neighbor is. Loving your neighbor is about defining what love is. James Montgomery Boyce, a a pastor and theologian who's since passed away, he said this about this. I always find his, his work helpful when I'm trying to understand a passage. He says this, we say, whom should I love? Or how many people can I love? Thus hoping to limit our obligation. And Jesus asks... Do you love? Never mind whom. For if you do love, then your love will inevitably operate as it should when you come across the needy. So I love that Andy Osanga, who's leading us in worship this morning, kind of took a moment when we were singing that song to remind us that God's redeeming work is to compel us to love and serve one another. It's not just that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a way for us to be in paradise with him forever, but even now, to love and to serve those around us, right? Open up my eyes and wonder, show me who you are, fill me, lead me in love to those around me, right? That we do this, that this is what the path of love requires. And it's vital because the definition of love, not neighbor, is what we pursue in obeying this command from the heart. Just to say we're called to love anyone in our path doesn't quite get at the heart of the command if the only people in our path are people who are just like us because we've arranged our lives in such a way that we never have to actually interact with those who aren't in our same station or our same neighborhood or our same demographic or same economic bracket love says no no loving your neighbor will change your path it will divert you from self consumption consider the samaritan's path in the story when he finds this person he's on his way from a to b we don't know why we don't know why he's going from jerusalem to jericho we just know that he is when he finds the dying man what happens his path changes He has compassion on him, and that compassion changes where he goes. So he takes this man on as his burden. He understands that as I enter into caring for this person, I'm now taking on the cost of caring for this person. And so that's what he does. He abandons his course in order to care for him. Now, he doesn't abandon it forever. He eventually goes back about his business. He takes the man. He gets him into a safe place. He tends to his wounds. He leaves him at an inn. He tells the innkeeper, here's some money. <coughs> if you need more than this, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to pay whatever else there is. He promises to return and cover any further costs. But in answer to the question, what is the path that love requires? It's this. Well, it requires being willing to be diverted from the path that you're on in order to love and care for other people. The call to love requires that our path takes us in the direction of the poor and the needy when we encounter them, and we should be living in such a way that we're seeking to encounter them, not away from them. And where exactly is that? It's everywhere. We're in Williamson County. It would be so easy to live in Williamson County and think, Williamson County only has wealthy people, but you'll go into the lobby and you'll see that table that is filling up with food items, which continue to contribute to that, because that all goes to GraceWorks, where as part of our VBS that we're going to be doing here, we're going to be assembling fuel bags, which are food bags for people who live in Williamson County with food insecurity. It'll go toward lunches for children, school lunches for children to take with them. There are so many people who live in Williamson County who are vulnerable financially. And they're in our path, they're in our community. They are our neighbors. It's an easy place to live and never encounter that. But it doesn't mean that we don't have neighbors in need, it's everywhere. The one lying in the road in need of mercy is everywhere. And Jesus even said it in the Great Commission. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And when we hear that, we think, yes, okay. When Jesus says Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, we think what we need is sending missions organizations. And yes, that's true. We're a church that has a family right now, Parker and Natalie Milliken, who are in Hounslow, England, who have gone there through a sending organization, Surge, being sent out by this church, Christ Press Cool Springs, where we laid hands on them and commissioned them and sent them to go and be a part of a mission work there. And that's beautiful, and that's important. And at times, this is precisely what is needed. But it's not what the man on the road from Jericho to, from Jerusalem to Jericho needed. What he needed is one person. He needed one person to see him and to have compassion on him and to stop So where do we begin? The way we love our neighbor is by placing one foot in front of the other, walking a path that takes us in the direction of the poor and the needy and not away from them. So get involved in places like GraceWorks here in town. Get your children involved. Bring them with you, your friends. That's it. For some, this may lead you deeper into serving this community through volunteering and investing and giving. It may lead some of you to China, or the Congo, but it may lead others of you to just learn your barista's name or get to know the single mom or the Arabic family that lives across the street from you and invite them for a meal. And you may ask, am I doing enough if I do that? It's the wrong question. Is, the question is, is it an act of worship? Is this you engaging with the Lord? saying, I am seeking in the way that I live my life and my community in the path with the people who are in front of me, Lord, ultimately what I'm seeking to do is love you with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love my neighbor as myself. And Jesus says, that's the goal. That's the goal. Where does he say it? He says it in Matthew 25. It's an act of worship when we live this way. Because in Matthew 25, Jesus is talking about people who enter into the presence of the Lord after they die. And he talks about the Father receiving people into his glory. And he says that the Father will look at, look at them, look at the righteous, and he will say, when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me in. When I was sick, you visited me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you came to see me. And the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you in or naked and clothe you or sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will say, the king will say, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it unto me. Loving your neighbor well is an act of worship. And we know this because Jesus receives it as an act of worship. Who's your neighbor? It's anybody in your path. The trick is not to define who your neighbor is. It's to define what love is. The path toward loving your neighbor well is going to lead you to the hurting and the poor, not away from them. But can't you also see that it leads to unspeakable riches, the riches of a life that is wrapped up in loving what Jesus loves. And it's the most authentic way for us to live as his people. It is a life of worship. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for stories. I thank you for the parables in Scripture where you teach us by giving us content but also inviting us to imagine and think and to turn things over and to unravel, to see ourselves, They're walking along the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, encountering people in need. You teach us to see ourselves as people broken and in need, needing help and what that help could look like and who we should want it from. Father, help us to know what it means more and more to love our neighbors, to be willing to divert our own paths, to care for those in need around us, uh, and to see it as an act of worship before you. And we pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.